This is the How'd You Get Into That Podcast with Grant Baldwin, episode 39. Welcome to the How Did You Get Into That Podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an inspiring interview or encouraging message to help you find and do work you love. Now, here's your host, Grant Baldwin. What is up, my friends? Welcome to episode 39. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're having a great day. I know I'm having a great day, and I'm going to tell you why. I'm a little excited. Today, my friends, at the time of this episode being released, today is my birthday. Cue the music. Cue the birthday cake. I love birthday cake So uh, and ice cream. So if there's a way for you to get cake or ice cream to me and we can celebrate together, I am all about that. I am the ripe old age of 17. Pretty excited about that. It is a, uh, a big milestone in my life. But uh, yeah, today's my birthday. Whatever. You know, you get to a point where like birthdays, you could just kind of like, yeah, it's another one. Like, have you ever had... Um, you ever had a year where you turned whatever is your birthday and you couldn't remember for the life of you how old you were. You had to, you had to start doing the math and figure out what, what year you were born and just kind of backtrack and reverse engineer and do this complicated algorithm to figure out your birthday. That's kind of where I was at this year. I really had to do some math. So even now as I'm, as I'm talking, I'm not entirely sure how old I am this year. So we're going to keep going with 17. We're going to live with that for a while. Anyway, enough about me. Great to have you here. Hope you're doing well. Hope life is, is treating you good. Got a great show for you today. A lot of good stuff happening in, in, uh, in the world and life. And uh, I'm just, man, I'm just excited to be here. It means a lot that you're hanging out with us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of the of the show today. Hey, real quick, want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, 99designs. Your branding is the face of your business. So make a great impression with creative professional designs from 99designs. You can go to 99designs.com slash grant and get a power pack upgrade for free. Again, that's 99designs.com slash grant. Get that power pack upgrade for free. Check them out. All right, today we've got my friend uh, Ben Armit uh, hanging out with us today. Ben has a, uh, a really cool story and a lot of cool stuff that he's been involved in. Uh, one of the main things that Ben has done is he's planned a variety of different events specifically geared towards creatives. So we spent some time talking about that. If you are someone that's interested in event planning, uh, Ben is definitely a guy who uh, you can learn from and, and uh, really glean a lot from. He also he just came out with a new book called Dream Year, and uh, he helps people, similar to what we're trying to do, he helps people just kind of figure out where their life is going and uh, uh, what they can do to actually uh, create the kind of life that they want to have. So uh, most excited, Ben and I are uh, going to be opening an ice cream shop fictitiously, but we like to dream about it and we spend a lot of time talking about it in this interview. So, all right, let's get to it. Here we go. Here's an interview with Ben Armint. Enjoy. All right, what's up? Today we're joined by my friend Ben Arment. Ben is a uh, man, he's just a, a smart, good dude who's got his hand in a lot of different things. A very smart, uh, creative guy who helps a lot of people figure out what they want to do in life. So I knew he'd be a, a great fit for us to hang out with today. So Ben, what is up? Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Grant. I'm glad to be here. Thanks, man. So uh, give us a quick snapshot for people that aren't familiar with who you are or what you do. Give us that. Uh, give us that nutshell. Yeah, sure. You know, I get to do what I love, which is to produce events. And uh, that was sort of a realization a long time coming. Like I'd done so many other things my whole life. And then I'd say eight years ago, I kind of figured out that events were my thing. They came really easy for me. And so I began working for somebody else, you know, running their events and then realized, oh my gosh, I think I can do this on my own. And so I was able to kind of shape the kind of life that I wanted here in Virginia Beach where I live. And then while I was doing that, started a program called Dream Year. And we have coached, or I have coached, I guess, about 12 people each year 
there have been weekend events. And so hundreds of people have come through the program and they're all people who are just dying to, to do what they love, you know, to, to pursue a dream, to bring a great idea to life. And, and I've had the thrill of sitting on the front row of, you know, watching and even being able to help these people accomplish that. So that's kind of what I do. Nice, man. Well, I'm I'm intrigued to get into Dream Year because obviously that fits really well with the people that are listening to this. But at the same time, I'm also intrigued by by what you're doing with event planning because we've had we've had several people that have reached out to us that that have had an interest in that just as a career, whatever that looks like. We're just like I really like planning and organizing events. So how do I how do I get into something like that? So when you're planning and organizing events, and that's kind of been your history for the past several years, what types of events are you working on? What are those look like? So I started working at a you know, a company called Catalyst in Atlanta, Georgia. And those events were for young leaders and uh, rather large events. So there was an arena event in Atlanta and then there were, you know, 3,000 person events all over the country. And it was really great. But my whole life, I've been bent toward the creative class. I started out my career as an advertising writer and producer. And so that's never left me. I think over the last decade or even two decades, I have had such a huge passion for people who are professional creatives, people who either create videos or they write or they honestly, maybe they even shape businesses, they're entrepreneurial, all sorts of creatives. And so the event that I do each year in Chicago is called Story and it's about 1,500 people and it's a thrill. I absolutely love it. And they're very very creative and just really interesting folks that come. What got you interested in doing events? Was it just uh, attending a few and you're like, I, I want to know, know the guts behind this thing. Right, where does that come from? Yeah, you know, and I, I'm glad you asked that question because I think I love answering it. I love helping people, especially if they're thinking, oh, I could do an event or oh, it's too much work. I, I love just addressing this issue because there is a practical reason I got into it. And then of course there's probably more of a, you know, just sort of a, a a passion that I have for events. I am wired to do them. I love organizing. I love bringing people together. I love curating and crafting experiences. But the other side of the coin is, is that I read somewhere that when Sean at at the time, Puff Daddy Combs was attending a college in Washington, DC he would commute up to New York City to work at a record label. And he noticed very early on that the people who were really calling the shots, the people who were making all the money, were the people in suits standing behind the cameras, not the people starring in music videos in front of the cameras. And so he decided at that moment that he was going to start his musical career by, by becoming a producer rather than an artist. And he eventually ended up as an artist, but he started as a producer and that for huh. me is very similar. Like I love to speak. I love to share my message with the world. But I learned very quickly that if I put on my own events, first of all, it wasn't even a, a contest between what an honorarium price would be and what the profit would be off of a successful event. And I learned also that if I owned the event, I could speak anytime I wanted. Yeah. And so that's been a real thrill for me is that I get to now speak at all of my events and uh, I get to launch things on that platform, but yet the rewards of doing it and going through the hard work of designing these experiences is much greater than if I were to just, to just be a, 
you know, a speaker. I like that we're only a few minutes in and you already dropping a uh, P. Diddy reference on us. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like though that I think there's I think there's absolutely real value there. I don't necessarily have to be the expert on the stage. I don't have to necessarily be the speaker, but sometimes the value is just I'm the person that brought the tribe together. I'm the person that happened to bring all of these like-minded people together. So then people kind of look at you as the expert because you're the one that kind of gathered the party. That's so true. I mean, and you know, Grant, I think that you, as you're speaking to so many people on this podcast, you are gathering a tribe and you, you know, you're bringing together thought leaders. And you're right. I think a rising tide lifts all boats. And I think when we are the, the ones who, who gather other people, it lifts our, uh, our water line as well. Exactly. So that's, it's my, maybe you and I, that's is our way of, if we hang out with smart people, it makes us look a lot smarter than we actually are. <laughs> exactly. That's really all part of our <laughs> evil plan. All right, let's backtrack a little bit. So where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, in a city just north of Dayton called Tip City, a very small town. And then the other half of my life was in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. So I honestly, to this day, I don't know that I can claim either one as home. I split my time between them and have great memories and and, and all of that. But, you know, I, I remember I grew up around fields, cornfields, potato fields, you name it. Yeah. Uh, my childhood was filled with farms. Is that what your parents did? They did not. They did not. But I, that's all that was around me. You know, I grew up going to festivals where it was definitely for the rural community, you know, strawberry festivals or other fruit festivals. <laughs> and that's when I think about my childhood, that's what I think about. And I think, honestly, to this day, part of the reason I seek adventure in all that I do is because I was very bored as a child. Yeah. <laughs> I needed my environment. There's only so many strawberry festivals you can go to. Exactly. Exactly. So, so growing up, what, what did you want to do with life? Did you have any, any ideas at all? Yeah. You know, from a very early age, I wanted to, this sounds crazy, but I wanted to own an ice cream parlor. Nice. And this was long before I had even worked at one. And so finally, when I got into college, I spent my college years working in an ice cream parlor where we actually churned the ice cream and made it from scratch. And it was an incredible experience. And I would say that even to this day, owning an ice cream parlor is a dream that I am still gunning for. That's I want to so cool. do that. I have no idea why, but, but I did. <laughs> Very cool. So uh, what, what did you go to college for? Uh, ice cream making or what, what were you wanting to do? Because I assume like a lot of things, it's one of those things like, Man, I would love to do this, but there's so many people I talk to who I'd say, "All right, what would you love to if you could do anything? Time, location, were all irrelevant, you're guaranteed success. What would you do?" And they always have some answer. And then I always ask them, I said, "Okay, realistically though, will you do something different?" And most of them are like, "Well, yeah, of course I'll do something different." It's like, "Why? Why is it that so many of us are like, I have this dream?" It's like if Martin Luther King gave that speech. He's like, "I have a dream." <laughs> nah, never mind. It's like it's such a bummer, you know, that so many of us are like that. So, so it sounds like you know you pushed it to the back burner for now. What were you kind of thinking? All right, that's the dream, but here's the real thing I want to do. Yeah, you know, I, I always felt that it was somewhat recreational. I knew yeah. I could always kind of pull that out. So, but I think at the end of the day, when I was in college, the thing that I really wanted to do was live a significant life, and I'm not sure I had a handle on exactly what that would look like. And so it amounted to me banging into wall after wall after wall. I ended up 
getting a, an English degree, mainly because I thought it would help me to have a career in advertising. But I tried all sorts of things while I was doing that. I interned excessively during college. So I interned at the local newspaper as a reporter, and I interned at the local television station to see what that was like. And I was even an intern in the President Clinton's White House, you know, one summer. So it was a long process of just trying to figure out what would be the most significant pathway for me. But, and so I think getting an English degree was a, was a, a good bet for me. It was a way to, um, you know, to get a liberal arts education. You're not specializing too much and writing helps you in all sorts of careers. And I would say I don't have any regrets from that. I feel like it was the best possible direction for me. It led to, you know, writing books and writing at an ad agency after I graduated and all sorts of amazing projects. And I would say that writing is the foundation for everything that I do. So for me, it was the right choice. Nice. There's a lot of people I've talked to who would say something similar about writing and just like writing is one of the things that can apply in so many other areas of your life beyond just what we typically think of of publishing or or books or magazines, but just getting you to think and to process things and to get thoughts out of your head and onto, onto paper makes such a huge difference in a lot of different ways. So as you're trying a bunch of different internships and just kind of bouncing around from, from thing to thing, do you have any sense of direction or you just, is anything sticking at that point or, or what's going through your head? Yeah, everything was sort of souring on me. You know, the the job at the advertising agency just started to sour on me. I, I felt like, you know, I was writing about industrial equipment, you know, for a business to business, you know, magazine. And I was creating websites and writing for billboards and things like that. But it was it was all for things I wasn't passionate about. And so my cure for that was to try something else. And so I leapt out of that career to pursue other things and, you know, tried grad school in different avenues. And it just got to the point where I realized that I was never going to be happy with my career until I was doing what I loved. And for me, that meant changing projects all the time. And I, you know, I've heard people say, uh, oh, I'm a starter. You know, I, I can get things off the ground. I just can't finish. I'm not wired like that. I really do love to finish. I love to bring projects to life, but I love starting a lot of things. And, you know, I think it took me a really long time, Grant, to give myself permission to be like that. I almost felt guilty for ending my jaunt into a new career direction, only to go in a different direction. And I used to beat myself up about it and really wonder what was wrong with me. Why couldn't I nail this down? And I think it took a while, but I was eventually able to give myself permission to be someone who launches things. And even to this day, I can give myself to something for five to six years, but then I've got to start start up the machines again in the brain, right. get other ideas cranking so that I can launch it again because that is truly where I'm at my best and I feel like it's where I also feel the most fulfilled. I, I feel like you've given a lot of people that are listening to this permission for that to be okay. Cause a lot of times when we try to figure out what we want to do, I'm sure you find this to be true. Like a, a lot of people feel the need of whatever that thing is. That's the thing I'm doing for the next like 20 years or 30 years. Or like, this is the eternal career that I have. And it's like, no, no, I'm comfortable with the idea that I'm going to do something for like a couple years, like two, three, four, maybe five, six years. And then after that, there's a good chance. There's a really good chance I'm going to pivot and go a totally different direction. And just being okay with that, I think it's just a huge step and not feeling like, nah, I'm all over the map and everybody's questioning me and my mom doesn't know what I'm doing. But like I, internally, I'm just comfortable with the idea 
that I'm, I'm good at doing like short term sprints and not this, mm-hmm. this 30 year career with one employer. And I'm okay with that. Mm. Yeah, I agree. There, there was a book that had a profound impact on my life a few years ago, Timothy Ferris's The 4-Hour Workweek. Sure. And not for the reason you'd think. I mean, people buy the book because they think they can get away with working fewer hours, and we all know that that is not true. But um, even I think even Timothy Ferris does not work four hours per no. week. But the principle in the book that really impacted me was that your money, your revenue, your income – does not just have to come from one source. And I think for a long time, I thought in order to be a productive member of society and to be a a responsible person, I had to have a salary from somebody else in exchange for the value that I provided to the world. And that has shifted for me. No longer is it one source. I have a portfolio of revenue. So there's, you know, it's like a mutual fund might have various, you know, sources of stock that all contribute to the bottom line. For me, that's the same thing. I yeah. have many projects going. They all contribute to the larger number that I need to sustain my livelihood. And I encourage other people to do that because there are seasons when the thing you're working on just suddenly sours. The market's tired of it or enough competitors have come on board or you rode the wave long enough and it's time to start something else new. And if you have something going simultaneously, multiple things working, you can discard the things that don't work. You can pour into the things that do. And you can ride through the really rough seasons when the market may take a downturn in one of those particular areas. Yeah, for sure. Here's a question, though. I think a lot of people who listen to this, I know I get a lot of emails of people going, you know, I have uh, 97 different things that I'm interested in. How do I pick which one? And so I think it's it's super, super helpful for people to feel like that permission of, well, you, you don't have to pick just one. You can do a few of them. You know, you could do two, three, four, five of them maybe. So even when you get started, though, you can't start, you can't go five different directions out of the gate. So like, how do people begin to narrow down or how did you narrow it down to, let's start down this path least for now, see where it goes as how long do I stick with that before I'm willing to go a different direction. So how do you narrow down to at least something to start with? It's a process of identifying your criteria for what you're going to pour into. Not all ideas are equitable. It's not like it's all just good ideas and you have to figure out which ones you're going to do and make a, a choice based on your own preferences. There needs to be kind of a matrix that you put your decision making process through uh, I was attending an event where I got to hear Daniel Lamar, who's the president of Cirque du Soleil, and he described how they decided which projects they were going to pursue. And it was some of the things that you would, you know, you would expect, you know, very imaginative. And one of them was with great partners. But the final one, it was so critical for me to hear, and that was it has to be profitable. And there are a lot of good ideas out there that people have but they can't figure out how to make them profitable. Right. And you know, it may be things that they would love to do, but if you can't find a way for it to be financially sustainable, for it to be profitable, in my humble opinion, it needs to go. Now, there's nothing wrong with having hobbies on the side, things that you do just for the sheer love of it. But if you're talking about building your career, you're talking about building a dream that can be monetized and is sustainable so that you can continue giving that gift to the world – it's got to have a solid profit margin. And so, you know, for me, it's very easy, you know, for me to tell which things I, could, I should continue investing in versus the things that are, are just taxing my time. Yeah. But, you know, that may not be true for everybody. There's, you know, there's other situations where people can sustain something, even if it's not profitable for them because they love it. 
if it breaks even, that may be all that it needs for them to, to do. But I'd say you have to come up with your criteria. What is your criteria? I think a lot of that depends on season of life, too. I mean, if you're someone who maybe you've got a, a lot of, of school loans that you're trying to pay off or you're just in a, a, a financial spot where it's like, I really need a solid income, then, yeah, that, that criteria of profitability is going to go up a lot higher versus if you're someone who's going, no, I'm in a good spot financially and I've got a lot of these other streams that are coming in that not maybe not even necessarily like passive streams, but they've just got other parts of the portfolio that are bringing in income. Then if you want to try something and and it doesn't work, that's okay because the risk is spread out amongst those things. And I like the other thing that you said of just saying, like, if it's a hobby, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with hobbies, but just call it a hobby. Like, call it what it is and don't pretend like it's a, it's a business that's losing money. It's not a business you want to be in, you know? So how did the event planning come into place? How did you first kind of get your taste in that and decide that this was something that really fit well for you? Yeah, I believe that every dream has a timeline. You should be able to look back in your life and see that, you know, your experiences and the, the times in life when you were really thriving and succeeding, all of it speaks into kind of what your thing is in my, in my world, what your dream is. And for me, I can go back to my childhood and see exactly the path that was charted for me to become an event producer. One of the first things was my children's minister at my church was a Barnum and Bailey trained circus clown. Oh, nice. And so when he did events for the church, they were spectacular. There were circus tents and carnival rides. And, you know, if we didn't bring enough visitors, there would be this nemesis coming on stage to threaten shutting, shutting it all down. And, <laughs> and I just, I got it swept into the drama of events. And as I got older, you know, I remember, you know, putting on events with my little sister and went into college and, you know, I began organizing events. And then even while working at the, the advertising agency, I was putting on events for teenagers in my hometown of Dayton, Ohio on Friday nights throughout the summer. They were concerts and outreaches and all that sort of thing. And it was amazing. But I think I did the thing that most people tend to do when you get into college is you get put back on the track of trying to fit your round peg into somebody else's square hole because society teaches you, you got to do what's conventional. And so I, I got on the track to become a good employee and to learn how to become a good employee and find a great job where I could be a good employee. And it took me a long time, you know, another, another decade or so of working for other people before I realized, you know, this is something I need to just pursue for myself. And, and you know, the first event I did was sort of recreational. It was kind of one of those things where I wanted to organize something in my hometown because the venue was there and it looked amazing. And I thought, how great would it be if people would come to this? But it turned out to be one of the most successful things I had ever done. And, uh, you know, nearly a thousand people showed up for this event. It was incredibly profitable. It was amazingly easy for me. And I realized that was my sweet spot. It came easier for me than it did for a lot of other people that I knew. What was that first event? It was called the Whiteboard Sessions. Yeah, I remember that. In, oh, wow. Okay. It was in Reston, Virginia. And I honestly didn't market it or promote it at all. I put it on my blog at the time. And it spread like wildfire. And I think it was a matter of the idea was really ripe. That was actually when, I believe it was UPS, had those whiteboard commercials yeah. on television. And I thought, wow, that would make a great event to hear leaders talking about strategy and the event just clicked. There was something about it that it was the right thing at the right time. And uh, it worked. And it's what it took to get me to pursue events full time. 
So it's one thing to see like a UPS commercial and be like, that'd be kind of cool. Like, what if we put together an event like that? And so like, how do you like pull the trigger on that? I mean, because by doing an event and especially hosting it with just the the time commitment, the financial commitment, and and obviously it was turned out really, really well and it was really profitable. But at the same time, like it, it could have been an accidental nonprofit and just a huge disaster. So how do you decide to take the leap on, on something like that, like hosting your own event? That's a great question because it's, it's, it's asking me to analyze something that at the time I'm not sure I was aware of the mental dynamics going on. Right. I, even looking back, I, I feel incredibly grateful that I had the presence of mind to stick my neck out. And I would say for me, there's something about taking risks that's exciting. I don't fear it quite as much as maybe the average bear. And uh, part of that comes from failure. Like I've, I've failed some things and when you fail – you get this permission to then do even more because you figure I've, I, you know, I lost it all then. That what what worse can happen to me? And there's amazing freedom that comes with failing. And so maybe I've had enough early failures that it just didn't feel so bad for me. It, it wasn't the end of the world. And so I ended up sticking my neck out for this event. You know that that phrase that's out there to the person with the hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, I would say for me. There must have been something about my wiring that has always loved creating experiences. And so for me, the solution to a lot of things has been to create an event, you know, to create an experience. And I think at the time, as I you know, was blogging, I was one of the first bloggers in my sort of social network, if you will, that ended up doing it. I actually read the book Hatching Twitter and discovered that one of the founders of Twitter was the guy who started Blogger which was the very first blogging tool. And I yeah. think I got on Blogspot the exact same year he started it, which would have made me, I guess, an early adopter. If you will. <laughs> and so I began meeting all of these up-and-coming bloggers that were gaining such notoriety for their craft. They became friends of mine. And I think that just putting the pieces together, I lived in a town, Reston, Virginia, where I thought an event would be great here. Add that to, oh my gosh, I've got these amazing people. If I invited them, they, I think they would say yes. And it just worked. And even to this day, I try to remind myself of that experience so that I'll continue keeping my threshold for risk high, that I will continue attempting things that I don't know how to do because I know that if I try, even if I fail, I'm going to be further ahead in five years than I would be if I had never done anything. Yeah, for sure. I always tell people like there's two types of, of regret. There's the things that you do that you wish you hadn't done. And we all have our fair share of those. <laughs> and then there's the things that you didn't do that you wish you had tried. And like, I'd rather try something and it be a disaster than to look back mm. on the end of my life and be like, man, I wonder what would have happened if I would have done that whole whiteboard thing. Why didn't I give that a <laughs> shot? Like, I think we've all had those moments where you see like your idea from years ago now alive and maybe it's a, a book, a movie, a product or something. You're like, oh, I thought of that a couple years ago, but you didn't do anything with it. And what have you given it a shot? Maybe it would have turned mm. into something. Maybe it would have turned into nothing, but you just don't know unless you try. It, it's so true. Most people's definition of failure is really just a reduction in standard of living. Yeah. And their worst case scenario is that they would have to sell the second car or right. They might have to move back in with their parents, which I, I get it. I, you know, I wouldn't want to do that. But, but I think that our threshold for, for risk has grown really low because we, our worst case scenario is something that we don't prefer, but it will not kill us. 
Yeah. So I think Dave Ramsey calls it non-fatal errors. They're just things that, you know, we, we can suffer through. They're hard, but they don't put us completely out of commission. So, uh, well, and even still, like a lot of times people's worst case scenario, like really you boil it down, your worst case scenario, A, the percentage likelihood of that going to happen is very, very minuscule. Mm-hmm. And B, that worst case scenario really like is, is not that bad. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we're never talking, like worst case scenario is never like it's going to lead to blood and guts and death. Like that's <laughs> generally not the case. Like you said, the worst case scenario is generally I have to downsize my comfort and standard of living. And it's like, so that's the worst case scenario. Like, why wouldn't you give it a shot if that's the worst possible possible outcome? So, tell me about this. I, I know since obviously you've you've put on a lot of events, you've hosted and produced a lot of events. For someone that may be listening to this that's interested in event planning, what are some things that they can do to get started? Whether it be working for a different company helping produce events or producing their own events. Yeah, I. I mean, I, my encouragement would be to start your own because it really isn't that tough, and it's not that hard to fund it either. I think most people think, oh, I've got to run a venue. I've got to invite all these speakers. I think that it's important to, on a napkin or on a spreadsheet, to look at what your profit and loss statement could potentially look like. It's going to take registrations. It's going to take maybe sales from resources at the event. And it's probably most certainly going to require some sponsorships. And so I'd look at the people in your life or the organizations in your life and see if there's anybody who would believe in the event with you. And so for me, I cast vision to sponsors for who the speakers could potentially be, what the bands will potentially be, what the venue could potentially be. And then if they buy into it, and in my case, a lot of them have, and I'm so grateful for that, they provide the sponsorship resources up at the beginning to be able to then reach out and invite the speakers to then put the deposit on the venue. And then, of course, you've got to just promote the crap out of it. You know, you've got to <laughs> figure out how to get that to your audience. You want to make sure that you've got a great idea to start with. I would say if you're unsure of the idea, if you need to test it, then take small risks. Use a free venue or use speakers that don't cost a lot, if anything at all. You know, really try to find a way to bootstrap it and just get it off the ground the first year. And and just watch and see what happens. I went to a, a conference over the weekend that was a, uh, we, were, we were talking about offline a little bit, that is a, a podcast conference. It was the first year they'd done it. And the whole thing was funded initially through Kickstarter and just a simple way to just test the idea. Let's just see if this is going to work. And starting with a, a really small concept and uh, in a really, really good way, it blew up in a, in, a, in a great way. And it turned out to be a, a much bigger event than I think they anticipated, but it was a, just a phenomenal event. And yeah. even kind of what we were talking about earlier, that that these these other podcasters who put the event on they were the ones that brought the tribe together they were the ones that hosted the party and there's huge huge value in that of going hey we don't have all the answers in podcasting but we can host the party that brings everybody together to talk about this subject that we all really really like whether that's that's podcasting or gardening or weddings or whatever that thing is that someone may be really into you can be the person that brings that brings the, the tribe together to to discuss to to connect on that subject. Yeah, absolutely. I, you, you, case in point, you you saw a great example of of how to to uh, I guess crowdsource, you know, crowdfund an event. So, well, that's that's really cool that you got to see that come to life. Yeah, for sure. It was very neat. Let's wrap up with this. I know that you just had a book come out, Dream Year, and, and you, you talked a little bit about this Dream Year project. So give us a snapshot. What is Dream Year? Not only just the, the book itself, but just the overall concept. Yeah, I, you know, I have started numerous companies 
And back when I was blogging, I got a lot of questions from people about how to launch similar things, either how to write a book or how to launch a, a company or to do this project or that project. And so I found myself answering everybody's questions nearly in the same way. It was the same process that I undertook for everything that I did. And I began to realize this is a thing. Like People need to know how to launch ideas successfully. And so I started an organization called Dream Year, and we have coached about a dozen people each year. And then there have been weekend retreats where uh, we've hosted hundreds of people. And as a result, for the past four to five years, we've coached hundreds of people in launching ideas and even you know, getting out of the workforce if that's what they wanted to do and start their own business or nonprofit. And um, what this book is, it's called Dream Year, How to Make the Leap from a Job You Hate to a Life You Love. The book is really that proven process. It includes hundreds of stories and examples of people who have done the same thing, but it walks you through the how-to of, of bringing a great idea, a great dream to life. And so it came out a couple of weeks ago and it's been exciting to see the reception that it's gotten. What are the, as people are thinking about their their own dream or bringing that idea to life, and I love the way that you, you, you phrase that, what's like one of the biggest hangups that normally sidelines or sidetracks people from making that leap? There really are three things that I hear. The first one is, I don't know my dream. And I always really challenge people on this. I absolutely believe you know what your dream is. You're just too afraid to say it. And part of it is if you say it, you acknowledge it. It means you have to do something about it. Yeah. But, but I think secondly, we, we lack the confidence to be able to clearly articulate. We, we kind of feign that we don't know what our dream is because we're not sure we have what it takes to do it or that we're trying to align ourselves with the ranks of people that we idolize or really look up to and we just can't bring ourselves to do that. So I, you know, I tell people, your dream is more about who you are meant to become, not who you are. So it, it's important to just cut aside your insecurities and acknowledge what your dream is. The second thing is fear. People say that they're very fearful of going forward. And it's not just failure. It is, I'm afraid to pick up the phone and make a call and make an ask or arrange a meeting. And I would just say that fear goes away with repeated exposure. You know, there are people out there doing your dream, doing exactly what you want to do. But the reason why they have no fear is because they just have more exposure to it than you do. Your fear will go away the more you start moving toward it. And yes, you'll hyperventilate. Yes, your knees will knock, but not after the fourth or fifth time that you do it. You've just got to keep pushing. And then the third thing is, I don't know the first thing to do. What is the step? How do I approach this? And I really encourage people to think about how do you reverse engineer your dream? You know, there, uh, John Grisham is known for writing these best-selling crime novels. Well, the USA Today did an article about him years ago that talked about how he wrote A Time to Kill, his very first novel. And that is he studied the prevailing bestsellers of the day and he analyzed them to see how they were constructed. He figured out how they started. He figured out how the chapters transitioned to each other, when new characters were introduced, when certain plot points were introduced. So that when he set out to write A Time to Kill, he knew exactly not only the plot, but exactly how each chapter would transition and what would be on the last page of the book. It was a mechanical process for him. And that is true for any dream that we pursue. We've got to break it down into bite-sized pieces and turn it into a to-do list to bring it to life. 
Yeah, that's so good because sometimes we just look at just this pie in the sky thing, or we we you know a lot of times on on this show we reference people who we look at A to Z on the the spectrum of things, and someone that's at Z, someone's at the top of the mountain in their career. We look at that and we're like, man, that's I want to get there. That's awesome, but I'm at A, and I have no idea what those middle twenty four letters are to get from point A to point point Z. So uh, just saying, okay, that's Z, but you're not going to magically end up there because you click the heroes together and just wish it to happen. So what do you have to do today? Day in order to begin to make progress uh, in that direction. So taking that dream and making it into an action plan is, is so, so critical. Well, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And um, I think that that to-do list is not something that we're used to doing because in our jobs, other people do that for us. They give us the job description. They yeah. give us the to-do list. When it comes to pursuing our own dreams, we have to be the ones who come up with the to-do list. That can be intimidating, but it's not impossible. So true, so true. Ben, where can we uh, find out more about you and find out more about the, uh, the the book? You know, I think dreamyear.net is the best place to find uh, information about the book as well as me. And then if people are interested in story, it is storychicago.com. And uh, yeah, I'd say between those two, I'm pretty trackable. Nice, man. I know we talked roughly, but so is story geared more toward just creatives in general? It is, but it's a wide range of creatives. It not only includes entrepreneurs and business leaders, it is really the creative practitioner in every organization. So we have you know, people who work at advertising agencies or people who work in the creative departments at churches or, or nonprofits. So it's a great swath of people. And uh, it's all people who are really all about pursuing audacious ideas. Cool. Very nice, man. Well, uh, listen, people, go first of all, go buy Dream Year because it's going to uh, really help you process and create that game plan of getting from from where you are to where you want to be. And then if that fits with you in terms of, of, of story, uh, make sure you check that out. It's a really good event. I know I've, I've got some friends that have been to it and uh, speak very, very highly of it. Just a, a really well done, uh, well crafted event. So Ben, thanks for sharing your, sharing your, your journey and story with us. Uh, I'm intrigued by the ice cream shop. So we can open, uh, instead of Ben and Jerry's, it's Ben and Grant's future ice cream <laughs> store. So uh, look, look for that coming to a supermarket near you. So Ben, enjoy the time, man. We'll look to talk again real soon. Thank you, Greg. Boom goes the dynamite. Hope you enjoyed that with uh, with Ben Arment. Uh, as always, uh, make sure you stop by grantbalden.com. You can check out uh, the show notes. Just a quick summary of everything that we talked about. Uh, if you're looking for just a, a quick snapshot of an episode, always feel free to go to grantbalden.com. Uh, you can also find links, everything that we discussed uh, about the show. All of that goodness is going to be uh, this particular episode, episode 39 at grantbalden.com slash Ben Arment, A R M. E-N-T. Had to think about that. A-R-M-E-N-T. So again, grandbaldon.com slash Ben Armit. Hey, I uh, want to let you know, I've got a lot of travel coming up, speaking at a lot of different events all over the country in the next uh, next several weeks. So it looks I'm looking ahead here. Let me pull this up. I'm going to be in Nashville, Fort Walton Beach, Dallas, Charlotte, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, Billings, Montana, Biloxi, Mississippi, Philadelphia, Jonesboro, Arkansas. That's just uh, in October. So I'm going to be doing a lot of travel. If you are anywhere in or near those cities, I would love to say, hey, I'd love to meet you. I'd love to buy you coffee. And uh, so, yeah, give me a shout. Shoot me an email or send me a text. Send me a text. Don't stalk me, but uh, send me a tweet. Uh, you can catch me on Twitter at Grant Baldwin or email me grant at grantbaldwin.com. But would uh, absolutely love to hear from you. Would love to connect with you sometime if I happen to be in uh, in your part of the world. So yeah, that's that.
One final shout out for today's sponsor, 99designs. Listen, get a design you love, professional, high quality results, exciting, fast, and affordable. You can go to 99designs.com slash grant. Again, that's 99designs.com slash grant. Make sure you go by and you check them out. All right. uh, I think that about wraps up episode 39. Make sure that you also stop by and check out Ben and Grant's ice cream shop coming to a town near you. We're pretty excited about that. We still got to figure out what flavors we're doing. And um, we got a lot to figure out on Ben and Grant's ice cream shop. But uh, nonetheless, that would be a, uh, a fantasy that we hope becomes a reality at some point in the uh, not-so-distant future. But again, thanks so much for uh, listening to uh, the show. really means a lot. really appreciate it. And we hope that these continue to be inspiring, encouraging to you. We hope that it causes you to think and uh, really figure out and pursue what it is that you were put on this planet to do. So don't just exist. Don't just go through the motions. Don't just take up space and breathe in air. But if you're going to be here, if you got one shot at this thing called life, do something significant. Do something meaningful with your life. Be a contributing member of society and make the world a little better place because of the work that you're doing. All right, that wraps it up. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the How Did You Get Into That podcast with Grant Baldwin. Don't forget to visit grantbaldwin.com for all the show notes and links discussed in today's episode. We'll see you next time.